Hello, welcome to another Lit Bits, the first of 2011. This is, as you know, the, the pod that you can eat between meals without ruining your appetite. Um, my name is James Kidd and I'm joined today by the Lit Bits pod father, um, Adam Smythe, uh, author and lecturer in English, and also today by James Mottram, film critic, uh, another author, and whose job gives a clue to what we're talking about today, which is cinema and literature. And I thought I'd just start with a very boring question is do we have a, a favorite cinematic literary adaptation well one i one i like one i think about is uh, that i think is always very good was train spotting simply because it's such a difficult book to uh to adapt because it's so fragmented and i think uh, john hodge the screenwriter did such a good job of, of yoking those kind of disparate sort of stories together and frankly, understanding what Irvin Welsh was saying in that <laughs> Scottish vernacular. Um, and, Ir and Irvin Welsh's career took off to a remarkable degree as a consequence of that film. That's it? true. Yeah. I think it kind of fed back. In a way, often it doesn't to authors. And, uh, and he kind of flourished as a result. Well, the funny thing is, I always think you, to <clears> actually, <throat> if you have a favourite book, it's so rare that it will become your favourite film. Do, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, you, obviously, the purpose of a good book adaptation on film is to capture the spirit of the book but inevitably you're going to lose scenes you're going to lose characters uh and it's it's all, an almost impossible task and i suppose it's a mistake to think that the canon of, of of great literary works from the 20th century great novels would ever translate into a canon of, of great great films and if you go through the ulysses or the, or the philip roth whatever your canon may be not many of those i would imagine have made good films and i imagine many of them have made appalling films well the uh, the philip roth one that springs to mind was i think was the human stain mm. with uh anthony sir anthony hopkins and mm. nicole kidman nicole kidman is a janitor which i just <laughs> did not buy yeah. um, even less likely than being virginia wolf <laughs> kind of on a par really there's as by its possession which i think is a good novel compelling novel anyway and that was a pretty poor film, I think. And that was Neil LeBoot, I think, directing yes, that. Was, at least until he did the Wicker Man remake. Had a, was a credible film director. There is a very funny... Uh, I think there are two versions of, of Ulysses. I think one's called Bloom, but there, there is one called Ulysses Made. And there is just enormous amounts of time spent with characters not saying anything, but with lots of voiceover. And, and you do wonder why they bothered and whether you could actually film a, a, a novel like that, that. Could you catch that sort of interior yeah. life or those interior lives in, with, with visual images? Yeah, so maybe the implication, maybe the, well, maybe the challenge is to think of any good books that have been sustained into good films. Whereas, the, as they, they always say, the, 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 uh, it's bad novels that tend to make good films. Yeah, I why mean, is that? What, what is that? Yeah, well, I think it's more that it's, it, they're novels that don't have expectations upon them there's something that's been plucked from obscurity and no one really knows the book anyway and no one really cares about the book mm -hmm. and then maybe a, 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 and they're usually pulp thrillers i would imagine something like that then possibly good good films can be brought from them and are they do you think they're often books written with a possible cinematic translation kind of in mind or are they just genre fiction kind of noir fiction there is an extraordinary example actually which is harlan coben's um tell tell no one tell no one and and I think Coben's a very good thriller writer. Um, he's slightly sort of slightly overegged. They 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 rush along and do feel like they're all begging to be to be made into movies. But it was made by a it by a French Guillaume uh, Carnet. Indeed, I'm sure it's quite I, I knew that. Prized, James. Uh, and and I thought it rather and everyone got very excited by the movie because it was called Dite Personne or something and had the woman from Four Weddings and a Funeral speaking French, so everyone thought that was terribly... Playing a lesbian. Well. Playing a lesbian, um, which terribly spiffy. And um, 
But but I thought when you saw the film, when I finally saw the film, I did think this is just the Harlan Coben novel, but them speaking French. And some, but somehow the Frenchness of the movie ennobled what was a pretty obvious thriller. And I think movies can do that sometimes. They can take books which plod along in a fairly predictable way. But there's this argument I'd be interested to know what you thought about whether prose <clears throat> has changed because of cinema mm. in terms of the style of writing in perhaps, we're talking perhaps thrillers here, maybe mm. writers are thinking of the book the, the book to movie deal in Absolutely. the back of their mind and their prose becomes more like a kind of a style that seems very easily adaptable. And Which is, would mean what, lots of dialogue, scene setting, exactly. less interior monologue, yeah. that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly, anything that's easy for a screenwriter. Stage to. directions instead of character development. DVD and the, yes, exactly. the <laughs> extras. In the back. Well, you do get extras now in the back of books. I think books are trying to be like do DVDs. You? In, yeah. what, in what way? Little author interviews, oh. the author's top ten favourite books. Commentaries. Um, commentaries about it. <laughs> oh, my God. I think one of the things that has changed, which is interesting you, you raised that, because I think that with some writers that is true. James Patterson, who, who writes his extraordinary um, books, which are actually shorter than some of Henry James's sentences. Um, I think one of the things that did change, though, was this: was the number of people like Robert Keyes and Sid Field who've written guide to how to write screenplays, um, the three act screenplay. I think that Robert Keyes, mm. Robert Keyes book. I think lots of novelists also read these books and and structure novels a bit like. Which is concerning because then you get you get very formulaic works, whether it's on screen or on the page. And- well, a question I wanted to ask, I mean, and you see a lot of movies, I guess we or you probably read a certain amount of books and, and we read lots of books. I, I wonder if that's, I wonder how, sometimes how true that is. I th- always think is the payoff between something like entertainment and, and something more noble, which lit- literature seems to, to, to lead us down, but which I think might be rather false, that actually a lot of books I read, particularly more literary books, you know, are dull as ditchwater. So, some novelists could benefit from going to, to watch a few um, uh Thriller. And maybe there's an idea that, yes, kind of literary novels are virtuous if they are dull. There's, there's, there's a sort of nobility in that kind of dullness and, and, the, and the, the work you have to kind of um, put in to read that kind of book. And I don't think you can get away with that so much in a film, can you? Well, I don't know. There's, there's this, this whole spate of worthy middle-brow kind of Miramax, usually produced, or at least they were in their day, by Miramax. And, yeah, you mentioned the Nicole Kidman, Virginia Woolf, The yeah. Hours. I mean, things like that that... And they're they're probably the most tedious films to watch. The ones that are the kind of films that are are, are straining for greatness, yeah. but will never. I mean, to me, a great film is something like. I mean, if we're talking in in literature terms, something like adaptation, which is is playing with form and 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 ideas and and content, um, in in a in a in a non three act structure kind of way. That to me is an interesting film, not necessarily an adaptation of. Uh, a, a, you know, a, a novel that is beautiful in itself. Well, what about that m- movement in the other direction from films which start off as only films or their first life is as a film and then attempts to bring those back into novels or books or write the book of the film? Now, there aren't many of those, are there? Mm-hmm. I remember in Star Wars, there was a whole spate well, of Return of the Jedi can I, can I pull something out of my bag, yes. please? Um, and that's not a metaphor. It is. Well, it yeah. is. It's literally pulling something out. It is. Oh, here we go. Oh, my Lord. The Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back. I, I have to say, I looked, I looked this up. I didn't know who this was. I guess I found my little page. By a person called Donald F. Glutt, who I looked him up. He was about sort of... 35, 36 or something when he wrote this. Living with his parents. (laughs) Quite possibly. Saul Bellows pen Well, you say that, but it sold 3.5 million copies and uh, was number one in the US for about uh, two months. But is that because I used to buy a lot of those books, but they were mainly films, you couldn't get DVDs and video wasn't really available. So you would, in a way, you would buy 
the novelization as a way way of seeing films. But I wonder about the readership of these groups, the people who who bought that book as a kind of way of reliving the film. That sounds like the the, the people who went to see the film are the same group of people. Yeah, perhaps we can have a sample. A small a small reading. Um, do tell me if it gets boring. Um, I'll see where we can. It is the Empire Strikes Back. It is the Empire Strikes Back. He is his. I was to say. I think he's his son. That's the way it all turns out. Um, but this is the, the, the probably the, the key scene of the entire six films. Let's say, and this is how it's been been written in this book. Um, if uh, if you if you only knew the power of the dark side, Vader continued. Obi Wan never told you what happened to your father, did he? Mention of his father aroused Luke's anger. He told me enough. He yelled. He told me you killed him. No, Vader replied calmly, I am your father. Stunned, Luke stared with disbelief at the black-clad warrior and then pulled away at this revelation. The two warriors stood staring at one another, father and son. That's, uh, yeah, it's more than a touch of touch of Barbara Cartland there, I think, isn't it? And it's a good example of a novel failing to do interiority and failing to convey the process of thought. Um, Bear, bearing in mind he's hanging off some sort of ledge at yeah. this point, as I remember. And were all those things going through his mind? I don't really think so. But it's all, and certainly not with that clarity and linearity of thinking. But it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it's totally dependent on a knowledge of the film and recalling the film. I mean, there are those famous lines that even now I can remember as quotes from the film that it conjures up almost like aphorisms. So it's, it only really makes sense, doesn't, doesn't it, as a, as a kind of second life of the film it's a tie-in as they like to call it but um, they do have a very low, low status like it's hard to it's hard to think of examples of, of books from films that have been been successful i can only hope he was on commission if he sold 3.5 million copies though it wasn't a set fee and they so. vanished rather i mean i think what they've been replaced by is is continuations of the series so there are lots of star wars books published each year but i assume the story's gone a long way with luke's great 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 nephew who can feel the force and that, and that intersection between writing and film also lives on in this weird phenomenon of slash fiction it's when people write imaginative fiction about people who have been in films or books and combine them critic david thompson weirdly i was told the other day has written a, i think a novel called suspect which takes lots and lots of film characters from film noir and from lots of different characters from film noir and i think lots of different films and imagines them in some weird setting which he constantly adds to and re-imagines. Um, and I think basically it's all about how much he quite fancies Nicole Kidman, from what I can gather. But um... And there's a lot of bringing together in this genre, apparently, or, uh, characters from different films and different novels who, who aren't in the same universe, really, but combining them. Also people from um, real life. I know there was a lot of kind of homoerotic slash fiction about Obama's romantic entanglements with Raoul Emanuel just after his election, apparently. That's an interesting question about the hierarchy, about why is it that books get made into films, but films don't get reimagined as books in any way. I mean, I, though, I was reading Craig Rain's latest uh, poetry collection, and there is a poem called Rashomon, um, and I, by pure chance, just seen the film a couple of days before, and it is Rashomon uh, pretty literally done i couldn't quite see why it was a poem but um it was about perspective and the different stories um but i couldn't quite see what the point of it entirely was it was, it was pleasant enough but it wasn't so, the best thing are we so are we saying that the, the novel has a kind of cultural weight and clout still that films don't um i mean many more people see films than read novels i would think now so on that level the cinema's kind of triumphant but um is it still the case that there's a sort of prestige and a um, a sense that this is the kind of a kind of ultimate art form. I mean, James and I often work in the London Library, and t 
10 years ago, I think people were writing novels and, and now they're writing screenplays. And well, I think that's because they probably see there's, there's a glamour attached to it, really, I suppose, uh, yeah. as wrong as that might be. But And, it, and it's, it, you talk to screenwriters and you know, once you've had films made and they're they you you rarely find a happy one let's put it that way uh, and when you do it's it's you know it's usually a sort of a freak story or something that because they... the, the level of control they can exert is so small isn't it presumably compared to a novelist writing a, a bit of yeah i mean most screenwriters i know I don't they don't want to do it good they they probably want to go on to to direct or something and it's it's a stepping stone yeah. uh, only not because they're being snobbish about it it's about the art form and such but just because they can't um they can, as you said they can't exert any control so um and some screenwriters do when they get particularly fed up i'm thinking of someone like bruce robinson will write a novel because he's had his work changed so much i think he i remember him talking about jennifer eight which was practically re-edited so that we, and spoiled all the twists and um, so he wrote. Uh, um, uh, well, he's just come out and done. Novel. Yeah, he's just come out and done the effectively been coaxed out of retirement by Johnny Depp for the Rum Diary, the Hunter S. Thompson novel. But it's very. Fu- it's a funny thing when it, I mean, there's rare moments when I've read a script to a film. It always seems an extraordinarily thin thing, and you realise then how much that writer and the, the script is just one variable in this big collaborative project. I remember um, years ago, my dad had a. Um, was a music advisor, bizarrely, on Out of Africa, the film. Um, some, some weird gig that he got. And so I remember before the film was even made, he came home with the script. And I was quite young, but I remember reading it and thinking, this is absolute dross. I mean, it's just sort of this How weird... How you were as well. <laughs> well, I was going to go on to say that, you know, it was a successful film. And, and when I saw it, although it was, you know, in many ways a monument to tedium, it was also a, a film that felt kind of plausible and they knew what well, they were doing. I'm sure you're, you can both tell me about this, but th- that surely many novelists have a, a number of their, their editors to thank for, for their collaborations. They and... do, and, and the, the most famous instance of that, um, which has been talked about recently, is Raymond Carver, celebrated for the, his kind of brilliantly stark, cut-down, uncluttered prose, which has this kind of brutal directness. And turns out that was, to a large degree, the work of his editor, and he would hand in these rather full... Um, in fact, he may have written that Empire Strikes Back. I don't know. Uh, hands in these rather full texts, which were pared back and pared back to create the supposedly authentic voice of Carver that we all know and we used to love anyway. Before we before we found out about this, that's quite scandalous, really, isn't it? That uh... well, it's 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 scandalous in the sense that it was kept secret and kept quiet, and Carver was knowingly complicit in it. But it also, I think, tells us that we've we're kind of wedded to a a false idea of authorship, even in the world, even in the realms of novels, where we imagine the author having complete control. But even in, in fiction and literature, as your question kind of implied, um, that's not always the case. There are it? certain writers who you feel could do with a bit of editing as their career goes on. And, and I think it's interesting what Adam raises about why is collaboration in fiction such a strange thing that, that inevitably a, a book goes through various processes. But I think you, know, you, look, you only have to look at J.K. Rowling um, and, and, and the way that her books have expanded and expanded. I'm not... A, an, hold my hand up and say I haven't read a single word um, of, of, of her work but I get the impression that the, the later books while still quite admirable in many ways are get a bit out of control and, and probably she is uneditable um, now but that doesn't necessarily make her naturally a great writer I imagine her first books probably did get edited um, but even but, with her author who like her who's writing all her own words there is still on a you know, on a kind of covert 
level. All sorts of collaborations always going on between her and her sources, her and her ideas, her and her influences. And her and the movies, I imagine. I imagine the movies, although she was tremendously successful, the movies must have given her an enormous um, shot in the arm, both commercially and perhaps um, critically. But again, that's something I was wondering about the difference of experience that we have about reading a book and imaginatively different, um, reading a book and seeing a movie that is part of the problem that when we read a book, we read it pretty much on our own, even if we're in a, a reading group. So we imagine what Harry Potter or Mr. Darcy or or even, uh, I dare say, Darth Vader, you probably have your own idea of what Darth Vader looked like, and you might be terribly disappointed when you turn up to watch the movie of uh, The Empire Strikes Back and think, my God, that's not how I picture My idea of, of Harry Potter is purely Daniel Radcliffe because I've never read the, you know, it's now been warped by... But it's almost impossible not to think of him anyway. The covers of the books... I find myself resisting on a fairly regular basis. Well, um, (laughs) the covers of the books have a small bespectacled boy who sort of looks a bit like Daniel Radcliffe anyway. uh, But which came first, the the, the cartoon or the Daniel Radcliffe? I I think the Daniel Radcliffe himself. Well, an interesting one actually was the the Dan Brown book, which I think is the the Da Vinci Code, which I think was very much read with um, one eye on the cinema because... Partly because there were many, many verbs and not very much else, and quite a lot of dialogue, which was fairly terrible. But it was really one thing after bloody another. And and when you saw the movie, it it, it was extraordinary because it added absolutely nothing. And it was probably quite handy that they they cast Tom Hanks, who I think he's got the least amount of charisma of any human being um, on the planet. But people who have read a book and and care about a book and are invested in a character are, are almost aggressively resistant to seeing a film and to the idea that it will spoil it and that their image of that character or that book will be ruined as a result. I mean, my, my favourite one, which I think does raise certain issues about some of the the, the, the elements we're talking about in terms of entertainment and, and, and kind of veracity and and, 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 and of some relationship to realism is, is Jaws and the stories that Peter Benchley tells uh, on the DVD extra is that he's meant to have fallen out with Spielberg about the ending and, and the ending of the book as far as I can, it's always a bit mysterious, but as the shark is swimming up to Brody, it stops and sinks and dies. And I think the inference is that choke, it literally chokes on on the character, on Quint, who's lodged in his gullet. And Spielberg's ending, which is the famous one where the, the, they've jammed a scuba tank in, in the corner of the shot, and he says, smile, you son of a bitch, and shoots him. And Benchy, I think not completely uh, unreasonably, says, well, it's absolutely preposterous ending you know the idea that this boat's sinking this 25 foot shark is swimming towards you and you're going to shoot this scuba tank when you've missed it 23 times and you've been beaten up and apparently what Spielberg said is is well if I've got them if I've got them in the palm of my hand for the previous hour and 45 minutes they'll go with me for the last five and in a way I think that's something there's something wonderful about the movies that you can watch absolute rubbish but if it's if it's good rubbish and is exciting You'll, you won't think about it until about three years later and think, hang on a minute, you know, surely... Well, surely... it's a rush, isn't it? It's a rush of an hour, and, as you said, an hour and three quarters is not a very long amount of time compared to what you generally spend with a, with a book. You know, a book is there to be savoured word by word, page by page. You can flip back and reread sections, which is often how I sort of read something. I'll read it very, very slowly and just go through it bit by bit. But a film is a set... I mean, of course, you can pause a film if you're watching it on DVD, but I don't think many people do unless they're... You know, interrupted or something. You're there to watch it in that set amount mm. of time, and it, that's they're two very, very different artistic experiences. So these different forms have different relationships to plausibility, and and when we're when we're consuming them, when we're reading a novel, we have maybe more rigorous and 
even narrow-minded ideas of, of what can, what's plausible. And... Well, it's a more, unfortunately to say, but it's a more passive experience. But isn't it possible to read with a similar level of passivity? I mean, I often read books and I read three pages and I can't remember what I've Well, read. yeah, that's absolutely true if you're not engaged with the book. I, I mean, I would certainly find if it's a book I am truly engaged by, it, it, that's an experience you can't replace with a film. It's also interesting that the things that you do when you alongside watching a film versus the things you do or don't do while reading a book. Um, and the fact that seeing a film and eating strange food seems to go together so much. And it's quite normal. Strange food in, in what? Curry well, the expectation things. is that you, when you go to a cinema, cinema and a multiplex, you'll have a hot dog um, with a little wave, waving bit of um, mustard on it and nachos with cheese. But it's not really cheese, corn. though, is it? You see, that's Whatever. the thing. Don't tell yeah. me what it is. Yeah. And, and a huge thing of popcorn and a, and a, and a, and a bucket of Why coke. is it that we eat these things when we go and see a film? Is it to do with the fairground or...? It is for that sort of multiplex sort of movie, isn't it? Because it's, it's all uppers. And I went, I was in the States and went to see a midnight showing of, of the second Twilight movie, which actually I quite, quite enjoyed. I, I wept. I'm a, I'm a big Edward Cullen fan. I, I admire him. Um... And uh, uh, my my father-in-law was there, and he'd had enormous amounts of caffeinated and chocolateified stuff, and he still fell asleep. And I thought that probably, uh, if he fell asleep with the amount of caffeine, chocolate, popcorn, and um, coffee he'd had, it, he can't have enjoyed the film very much. Um, whereas, whereas going to a library, I mean, obviously you can't eat in a library, and that's partly to do with book preservation. But I don't think it's entirely to do with book preservation. I think there's also a sense that these are books you need to dedicate yourself absolutely to these books and munching on a, 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 some nachos is not is not on i was asked to write an article talking about um books that might be adapted and usually most of these kind of big big scale books have the rights have been taken up anyway and but but books that, that should not be adapted for the for those sorts of reasons mm. so here's a list of five and i'll be interested to if you've read them and whether you think uh, you would agree with my five choices i don't know if you've read them or not if you haven't read them, it's going to be a disastrous segment. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll pick them at random. Blood Meridian, ah, first read of that. all. Yes. Yeah, great book. Marvellous yes. book. Now, Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> at one point or another, had the rights to it. Uh, someone just told me that James Franco, apparently he's he's got the rights to it now and he's going to make it. But but Tommy Lee Jones, who did a great Western the Three Burials that he directed <clears> to it, and he's perfectly capable of doing it, wrote the script and Sony, who he was, who took it to, said, it's just too violent, you know, and then presumably... It it's just, hard to imagine... It working and also why you would choose it except that Cormac McCarthy is, is and No Country for Old Men actually didn't the, the movie while I think very good didn't really add anything to the, in fact I think rather subtractive from the, I mean it was, it was fine but I've never wanted to see it again whereas I quite like to read the book and the thing about Blood Meridian is the uh, the extraordinary vocabulary he uses kind of this kind of Old Testament and also classical Latin and Greek sources it's just a, extraordinary the, the narrative voice is, is extraordinary and that's what it's all about the rest is just wandering around a desert um, killing people every now and again. A it's lot of hard. scalping, I believe. Yeah, a lot yeah. of scalping. Which yeah. presumably is, what is the problem that Hollywood will have. Cloud Atlas, the David Mitchell novel, which apparently is set over numerous centuries. And, and it's very much a book. I mean, it's it's about a book that's been... Well, your favourite Tom Hanks is attached to that. So, oh, well, I'm uh, absolutely thrilled. But it'd be, it'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it, in, in the process of kind of pitching an idea to um, filmmakers and producers, whether coming in and saying this has been a great novel um, or this has been a successful work of and all these pieces you're citing are kind of literary fiction respectable literary fiction whether that's 
you know, a, a, an ace in your hand, or whether they roll their eyes. But I think the key thing is they the, to attract. The key thing is to, to when you're getting these projects off the ground is to attract well-known actors that you know the Tom Hanks's of this world. And if it's a, it already well, exactly, <laughs> uh, if it's a credible book that has a great reputation. That's a, that's a that's a starting point, as opposed to an untested screenplay that's been written by someone out of the blue, and okay, maybe it's really good, but these books have inbuilt audiences. Now that could count against them, or it might count for them. So I wonder now if people, if we were to kind of think about the history of reading in the last thirty, forty years, reading in the shadow of cinema, whether we read differently and whether we, when we read, we have a a movie screen in our heads and we imagine things more visually and we think in terms of think in terms of films as we're reading novels in a way that obviously you wouldn't have done before um the 20th century I but then but then the people case. who were reading novels in the 19th century were, i mean they many of them may well have been to see plays and things yeah. so not quite the same thing of course but it's still drama enacted shall we say yeah. so yeah so i wonder if you're when you're consuming one art form you always have to sort of imagine it in terms of another in that way, that well, I wonder if we read differently because of movies. In terms of because of of the the technology now, we can watch movies at home in a way that when I was a kid, even you certainly couldn't. I mean, videos were still fairly scarce. I mean, they were round, but but now I read, and I think a lot of people read when, when we're on the move, um, unless your work happens to be. But and I think which explains why certain books have become so popular because it's very hard um, to read Proust on the tube because of the sentences and also because people bottle you for being a pretentious tosser, um, which certainly hasn't happened to me. But um, that's not why they bottle you, James. But but with DVD, DVDs means you can mean DVD technology means you can consume a film as you were saying, James, earlier. I think a bit like you would consume a novel in that you can pause, go back, reread, um, or review jump forward, do all these non-linear things, which you, in a cinema, in that passive way, weren't possible before. So maybe the two, as sort of technologies and experience, are becoming more more like each other. Mm. Um, people talk a lot, I was wondering about the kind of the state of, the state of the form, because people, when they talk about novels, are forever, or in the last 15 years or so, talking about the death of the novel, by which they usually mean some other technology trumping it, you know. Digital stuff, video games, croquet, lacrosse—I don't know what other 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 things occupying the place where novels flourished. Or people are saying that novel as a form, as a genre, is tedious and boring now. But then, then you also get Peter Greenaway saying that, that cinema is dead. Well, that's no, what I was I mean... going to say. Is that is there a similar sense? Is there a sense of cinema in crisis, or cinema needing to reinvent itself? Or I think because cinema is, is tech technology based in the very nature of how it gets to our screens and even how we watch it at the same time you're consistently seeing stories you've seen many many times before just draped in a new in a new guise as it were if you could imagine in 20 years time cinema being around and also you being able to inform the movie and shape the narrative and have an impact that, i mean how how they would do, if, if it can get to that that would be fascinating i mean i mean you mentioned or one of you mentioned video games I, i'm much more interested in the way video game narratives have evolved and i mean there's one called heavy rain where you can uh, it's a kind of film noir type story and you can influence decisions and the decisions you make will influence what happens in the narrative and basically i've only played it through once but apparently you can get different outcomes depending on what your your you know your 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 decisions are which at the moment is a very basic form of narrative uh you know for a video game but it that will evolve and 
That you cannot do in in. We used to get those kind of books where you could choose turn, your own adventure. Turn to yeah. page Ken Jackson and someone Livingston. And they they were all magnificent. I spent hours poring over those things. Brilliant. And but a film is a is a you know it's an item that cannot be adjusted as such. I mean, despite how much George Lucas will try and adjust yes. Star readjust Star Wars, um, and that's why I think video games are far more technologically advanced than than film in in a narrative sense. But a film made for a very sophisticated, heightened version of a DVD player, which leaps you jump, lets you jump around to different chapters, you could imagine that happening quite quickly. I mean, we're quite close to that now in a way we can, you know, jump forward and back. In a cinema, it's harder to imagine, obviously. My 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 experience of video games, which I haven't played for a few years, but I used to play quite a lot, was always it does take a lot. There was one called Football Manager. I remember in about late nineties. It goes on and on and on. Like would you would spend sort of entire days on it, and then you'd be fired and you'd lose, and then you'd think. I thought you meant in your life that you were playing at work, <laughs> and then you would sort of think, why have I done that? There's a tremendous sense of futility I always have from video it's games. It's the Roy Hodgson experience, effectively. Two little things popped into my mind as you were speaking, and that is um, giving up on books or films um, and how often we do that and when we do that. When you put a book about never to come back and or, or how often do you walk out of a film? That's, that's very interesting because I, I, I try, you know, I make it a real thing not to walk out of a film unless for some reason I have a time issue which is generally at a film festival where you may have to walk out of a film for and that's usually it can be a very painful experience if you really enjoyed the film and you've got to go for some other reason and it's it's that's awful um but what's the last film you walked out of out of as an expression of your hatred of it oh that's a good question i yeah now that i've not done a great deal of um i remember walking out of um uh, smiller's feeling for snow which i think was, i think i walked out on the book actually <laughs> Well, that you, and that's a sensible because that's a good book for eighty percent, and then it turns into a weird James Bond film at the end. Yes, it does. Um, but but I agree, it's very rare to walk out. Of. The last film I walked out of, I think, was probably Highlander Three, whichever was the terrible one, when I was about thirteen. Well, generally 15. speaking, the weather's so bad in this country that it's actually nicer to stay in a warm seat you've just paid for than it is to go well, out. So into you've the paid, and there's a, there is a money between. Yeah. And you, you could go and complain to the to the manager and get your money back. I, I should say that. Yeah. I mean, I think you should try that if you're if you're unhappy with the film. Well, I've eaten so much popcorn, I can barely speak. <laughs> you roll out out of the aisle but with books i've developed this worrying habit of reading a kind of about 70 pages and sort of getting the point of it um and, and it sort of getting the point of the book you know what's it's trying to do roughly i'm not terribly interested in the plot maybe but i see where it sits in relation to other books i'm reading it in that pragmatic critical but pragmatic way and then i think there's other things but you have 53 books on the go at that i'm like which i think I, i'm a bit like that, that that i'll start lots of books and then I have to read one for work, so I've got twelve already, and I forget which ones I've got. So, but beside my bed, and well, do we? When we see a film or a DVD, we think in terms, I think, of, of pleasure and uncompromised pleasure. In a way, with a book, there's pleasure there, definitely, and I love reading. But there's a little spark of duty that's always there, a little spark of a sense of improvement and learning and education. There is a cinematic. I mean, I, I remember going, and this is like that's a slightly Woody Allen feeling about you know you go see a Tarkovsky season and you wander out and you're sort of holding up the programme in case anyone mistakes you for someone who's an idiot. And you say, like, I've just seen this film by Tarkovsky and you've hated every minute of it, but but it's very impressive to wander out of the BFI having just seen Solaris or Stalker or something. I remember feeling... And it's that's much more like my feeling of being, say, a student and always having a copy of Camus in my pocket, which really was to write down, you know, phone numbers and stuff, but but looked pretty good. And 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 Netflix is responsible. Netflix is responsible for a lot of this, isn't it? Because you, you, you know, in, in advance of viewing it, weeks in advance, you construct your list of things you want to see. And inevitably, if you do that in advance, it's not pure pleasure. It's the, you know, 
it's um... well you create a list actually based on those i mean i remember doing that with with netflix being terribly annoyed because i kept getting bergman movies and, and kurosawa and in fact really what i wanted was to see caddyshack caddyshack and the new sandra bullock <laughs> filmable and not filmable and I was thinking both in terms of uh, partly in terms of novels I see the corrections but I was thinking th- things like um, The Naked Lunch but also I was thinking of the difference in the, visu- the visual and the and, and the image in terms of something like a, a film like American Psycho and um, Crash the J.G. Ballard Crash, Crash. I've always thought that I, I rem- now there's a book <clears throat> I put down after a hundred pages, but not because I couldn't get through it or I disliked it, but I felt so unwell after reading a hundred pages. It made me feel so queasy. I, I think the Cronenberg film was 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 good, and it did capture the spirit to a certain degree of the novel. But there were just lines which I'm not going to repeat on this mm. podcast that um that just <laughs> no not, not the one I'm thinking of um that that uh, that made me feel so sort of just sickened but not in a, in a morally outraged way just in a kind of it captured what he was trying to say those characters and what they were doing and no film however I mean, Cronenberg's a phenomenal filmmaker but no filmmaker can really put that visually it, that just conjure up that atmosphere I mean it was a very good attempt but but the odd queasiness about the film actually was that one of the things in the novel is that, that which I can't remember which name of the character is, but has got this weird obsession with Elizabeth Taylor that is completely removed from the film, as though to have a sort of weird fetish for Elizabeth Taylor in a car being killed is is a bit too close to the bone. And that got I thought of all the things that you would you would cut out, and there are sort of strange moments where you read a book and um and you and then see a movie that that's cut out something actually that can be quite innocuous um i, I think american psycho did that a little a little bit with some of the more fetishy i don't I mean that, and that's a very very good adaptation because it, it it wasn't there was no way they could ever put in the violence that's in the book it would be banned instantly as a film and i don't think i understood that i mean i think i actually think that was a big problem with the reaction to the book that actually all the violence is is was in fact less shocking often. Well, and I remember similarly to the way I felt about train spotting in the way that that had certain scenes, disparate scenes that they yoked together into one particular sequence. That I'm thinking of the nightclub sequence where they all they all go out and that pulled together about three or four different stories from the book that had nothing to do with each other in the book. Similarly, American Psycho had this, the 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 discussions about Whitney Houston and, and Genesis and uh, early Phil Collins, Huey Lewis in the news, yeah. I believe, which are all fairly verbatim. Yeah, but they're yeah, and but they're all completely separate chapters, and mm. they wove those into the stories of where he's axing um, Paul Allen. I think the character's name is the one played by Jared Leto in the film. Um, well, there's that amazing scene when he's axing someone, maybe this person, and yes, talking about early Phil Collins, or mid-Phil Collins. And this is the point where Phil Collins became a truly commercial artist, I remember he yeah. said, which is his ultimate... But there's point. a wonderful moment in that, which I think is where a movie can do something which a book can't, which is that there's a... And it, he, it's almost verbatim from the novel where he, he's going through his morning routine of applying various products. And Christian Bale is wearing a sort of strange, odd mask. And I think there is a bit about masks, either at that bit or a bit later in the novel... And it's an extraordinary image, which actually says far more than anything that's coming out of his out of, out of his mouth. And the fact that Ellis also has a Christian Bell fetish is also sort of quite, well. The thing with the thing with the book, it listed so it, it was a series of lists that book in in some respects, which which work on one level can get quite tedious to read on another level. I mean, it was in a strange way, it's an extraordinarily tedious book in some places, mm. and in other places, it's quite an incredible book. It's a sort of numbing book, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I think another another moment which I always remember is, is watching the reading and then watching the movie The Science of the Lambs and actually the most memorable line in it about that I'm having an old 
we're having an old friend for dinner, which is terribly hokey and cheesy, but um, rather wonderful, um, isn't in the book. If I'm the ambition to become a novelist versus the ambition to become a filmmaker, because it seems, from a personal point of view, film is a is a, a distant and impossible medium. I would never really think about waking up on a Monday morning thinking, I'm going to try and become a film director or make a film. Although one sees lots of films and it saturates our culture, but everyone writes a bit of prose. Everyone writes a bit of imaginative prose, probably. Um, and so you're always, always, already up and running to some degree and familiar with, with how you might write dialogue or... or well, um, you technically could write a book tomorrow yeah. and could then take it to a publisher and it could be published. Yeah. You, If you wrote a screenplay, you're only really at the very beginning in terms of having to get it made. I mean, there are so many screenplays, of course, that don't ever get made or anywhere near getting made. Yeah. Um, you need to know people. It's a, it's, a, it's a cliche, but you need to know... You know, you need a, a bunch of, you know, an agent and producer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if now with all these, you know, everyone has a mobile phone with a camera on that can do video now and a computer when you can edit things on. I wonder, it does seem that that technology, which initially was impossible, is, is suddenly available on a day-to-day -day level. Well, uh, I think that's about all we've got time for this evening. We hope you've enjoyed pod number four, is it? Pod four. Pod four. Return of the pod, ready for launching um, shortly. Thanks very much, James Mottram, for coming in to talk about film. Um, thanks to Tom Hanks. And we'll be greeting you with pod number five very, very soon. Bye.